Picture men, dwelling, in a sort of subterranean cavern, with a long entrance open to the light on its entire width. Conceive them as having their legs and backs fettered from childhood, so that they remain in the same spot, able to look forward only, and prevented by the fetters from turning their heads. Picture further the light from a fire burning higher up, and at a distance behind them, and between the fire and the prisoners, Above them is a road along which a low wall has been built, as the exhibitors of puppet shows have partitions before the men themselves, above which they show the puppets. Welcome to the first installment of Outside the Cave, a student speaker series brought to you by CUNY Law's International Law Society. You're here with Maya Demianchuk. And I'm Pablo Rojo. I would like to give a special thanks to our two speakers, Juvan Nguyen and Isadora Jaffe, and of course, to all of you for tuning in. Outside the Cave is meant to be a platform for CUNY students to speak about their adventures and their knowledge, and a space for us to listen. Our name, Outside the Cave, is a riff on Plato's allegory of the cave. Our stories are often lost within a collective narrative, and our reality becomes lost in the realities of others. And now finally, let us present our first speaker, Tru Van Nguyen, who will be speaking on post-war Vietnam. Tru Van Nguyen was born and raised in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. She came to the United States as a teenager. Wanting to pursue a legal career, Tru Van taught herself English while living in Seattle, Washington. After a decade of struggling, Tru Van is now a first-year student at CUNY School of Law and eager to share her story. In this series, she wants to shed light on the social and economic policies in Vietnam. Thank you, Maya, for that introduction. My name is Tru Van, and I'm here to talk about the economic and political reforms. And that Cold Đổi Mới, that was implemented in 1986 in Vietnam. So first of all, I want to clear out the fact that when a Vietnamese person talk about war in the early 20th century, they did not mean just the American war. The fact was that Vietnam walks out of um, French colonialism right into Japan colonialism. They have a brief period of what they would call freedom that quickly changed when a proxy war of ideologies was become very real, very hot on Vietnam soil. So by the end of it all in 1975, it has been more than 100 years of war and the people know more about how to live in a war uh, than to run a country, really. So the period immediately after that, my parents said it was quite scary because it was dark everywhere. There was People were just tired, overall tired of, of the entire the entire social scheme and political aspect of it too, really. And um, at the time, what happened was that there was this massive ration system where everyone have to give everything that they have to the government, and then they then in an effort to reallocate the, the resources between North and South because North and South Vietnam was at war with each other during the Vietnam War. Um, 
everyone, the government would take everything that the people own and so that they can attempt to divide equally among the people. And it was within that kind of setting that a lot of people fled Vietnam or tried to have uprising that not very successful. And where my parents is in this world was that my father was wanted as a as a war criminal at one point because he was helping people to escape Vietnam. He he was uh, quite active in his youth up until he was uh, in his into his late twenties. Um, his best friend was shot right next to him in one of those trips, and um, right before he met my mother, yes. And uh, as for my mother family, what happened was that they they have. They have business blood in them, you could say that, and they, and they become what the government then call smugglers. What happened under the ration system is that if you have, if the government said you can only have one pound of coffee per person, and you have two pound of coffee, they will arrest you and take everything you have in the name of, of crime. It was a criminal activity, and my, my mom and her family was being called smugglers and was known within the... the the area as one. So they were they were smuggling goods like like coffee. Yeah, like just food, to trade just, it around. Yeah. There was a lot of things you obviously do not need. Like if, if your family do not drink coffee, but everyone rationally speaking have one pound right, of it, right. but you need more rice. What do you do? That's what trade that's where my family. Yeah, <laughs> you trade a coffee for wow. rice, and that's what. And that's what happened immediately before 1986. And the government know that in that kind of, of system, in that kind of society, the country will co collapse onto itself because there's nothing concrete. And at the time, the Soviet Union was the, the only beneficiary that Vietnam has, and it was crumbling. So it make a bold move, a very bold move, when it implemented Doi Moi, and, and the people later on call the period as Cải um, Cách period. So a little bit into um, what the Doi Moi policy is about. What it is, is this, is the attempt of creating a free, free market socialist of a free market socialist economy. Does it sound like a twilight zone? It, it, of, it seems of, a little counterintuitive. Yes, <laughs> it is. And I mean, at the time, the idea of capitalism and, and socialism shouldn't be in the same sentence. Vietnam were trying to put it into the same system. Right. And what that was, was that the government willing to commercialize or privatize a lot of, of uh, key markets, a lot of uh, government-owned industries. And for them to do that, they allow the people to privatize themselves, to have partnership. Um, but all of that, of course, have to come through under five pillars. The first one, a massive um, healthcare system in which everyone was vaccinated adult and children and able body are all vaccinated, all tested to prevent diseases, to make sure they could come right back to work. 
The second pillar was free education. Vietnam know that if it's going to open itself up for even just for privatized within its own people, it needs the people to have the knowledge to take advantage of the of the um, of of the situations really because everyone walk out of it with little to no skill. They know the the depth of of knowledge that they are in, being so locked in immediately after the war and hence the the universal education is free all the way up into college and in college there be system that help you to various specific skills um the third pillars was hold on the first was a also a social welfare system where everyone they the country they pull back they pull back <laughs> on the rational system into a welfare um, system where everyone who struggle struggle would allow to have aids from the government the government would like directly give them aids to make sure that the 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 individual him or herself and his or her family were able to step up and take advantage of the, the opportunity that is flooding into the country. Um, that the fourth pillar is propaganda. Let's never forget that this is still a socialist communist society. Propaganda is strong. And that propaganda is the one where they will make sure that even if we all do this, this is a collective um, Effort. This is this is the people effort. This is the socialist society effort. This has nothing to do with capitalism, and let never forget that that capitalism is what have caused us to be, to to be in poverty to this day. So that was the goal of of, of propaganda. Another goal of propaganda was to implement the fact that we are still. And it pretty much is progress. One of these progress is basically called the which means that it would it to remind the people that even if you have all this freedom, there is still this this check and balance system that will govern over you, and that if you do anything that is outside of the allowed scope, it will stop you. It will criminalize your criminalize your activity. And and do you have any like specific propaganda that I'll, really I'll stood out to I'll you? I'll come to it. I'll okay. come to it real okay. soon. Interested to hear And that. the last pillar was uh, Planned Parenthood. Surprisingly, in Vietnam, Planned Parenthood was one of the strong things they focus on. For the government at the time and to this very day, the nuclear of a country is the individual family itself. And they recognize that a boom in population would not help them. And so Planned Parenthood, to your surprise, is in Vietnam since 1986. And to come back to your question about example, what happened right there is my parents, in their one of the first attempt to privatize themselves, they did it almost immediately really. When the when Doi Moj came out in 1986, they one of the first attempt was 1987, when it was when my sister was she, my mother was either pregnant with my sister or just gave birth to my third sister. But what happened there, as I say earlier in the propaganda 
of the is that if you are to take advantage of this opportunity you also have to do it at the pace the government allow you to so so what does that look like so what it looked like that then in late 1980s and early 1990s a lot of foreign company come in to open themselves because vietnam opened its, its door and so a lot of investment foreign investment coming in but the government stopped it right away around 1991 1992 because they feel like this is too fast too quickly so they right. stop everything and they they will push out investor and they will make sure the people will not make that connection then they internalize what they could do to best um capture the opportunities then they opened themselves up again in 1995 so it the the mark of that was where in 1995 they they joined a asiana which is asian um southeast asian countries um economic uh pack and in that so, come back sort to of my like a, a trade agreement or like the nafta of asia something like that yes but it has a lot more to do with the econ the the economic growth than than just strictly trade than just Got strictly it. trade it was a way for the countries to see each other in a, a more favorable light than it was before because because of the colonial time there was a lot of drift between country too with with their internal struggle with their own nationalism and then socialism and then all these ideologies has has changed the entire southeast asia countries outlook a lot and that's a different talk yeah. um now come back to my parents so what happened to my parents at the time is that it was totally legal for them to privatize themselves and they did but one day the government just came in and took everything away in the name of you moving too quick too fast for us it, it can be like this so they took everything away with no explanations and my sister my two older sister it was um two and four at the time and she told me what happened in that day was that they my our, our mom woke them up real early in the morning and and give them everything they could haul and told them to just run and they did with no explanation my their mom told them to run so they did with all the things they could carry and they met one of our uncle on the street and the uncle kept them safe on the street until night time so that they can snuck back into my grandparent home um afraid of, of going back to their own home because if the if, if the cops are still there they don't know what's going to happen to them It wasn't until two days after that that they met our mom again that they learned that the government just came in and took everything they had, including the house they was in. And and um, the only reason my mom got released is that, so my parents have this tactic because of their own background. They have this tactic where my mom would just act dumb whenever she got arrested. It's a lot easier. Is this sexist? Yes, it is, but it's a lot easier to be the dumb young woman who got tricked by her husband than to have a husband who didn't know better and and tag along with his wife so that my mom could could be released and go home and take care of her own kid until my father got released which like six months after that there was he was sent to almost like a detention center for for started a business oh. but they never give up 
because like Vietnam when they going in and out of of um of the oldest opportunity economic opportunity they go in and out of it my parents also go in and out of it and in the second attempt or third attempt actually in 1992 they success and it, it lasts until this very day but that sort of the reality of what happened even when all these economics is, is um and uh, pol political and economic changes was coming into vietnam is still very much a a testing round for the people who implemented and for the world to see really but what successful about that about đổi mới is that it's truly if if you really want to have a case study about what happened when a socialist society capitalized on free market Vietnam would be a real good case study of it because to this Vietnam I mean can, can we look forward to that case study from you I mean I <laughs> hope so maybe one day but because what happened right now if Vietnam went from being being invisible right, to being right. seen as mm -hmm. one of a middle income country with they actually what happened in Đổi Mới let's was that when they in within 10 years of them implemented it there was they successfully lifted 40 million people out of poverty and that at the time was more than half their populations wow. that is a record that is a success that a lot even it shocked the Vietnamese government and it shocked the world and and Vietnam which is growing from there and in 2007 um, I mean even right now in 2019 almost anything you see could have been made in Vietnam from the chip in your phone to the clothes you wear it become the manufacturer of the entire world and it's and it's also carried with it a very peaceful passive image that the I mean, the fact that North Korea and, and America met each other in Hanoi, Vietnam, in a country that U.S. went to war with just last decade, I mean, just last century. But now it's, it's so, such a peaceful image that Vietnam has carried that, that they, they, they that best friend you have. And it doesn't wonder to the, to the Vietnam's... Um, as a country in its economy but of course there will always be the downside to this because let's never forget that at the end of the day this is still a communist socialist society this đổi mới reform wasn't implemented based on the people voting the people didn't know about this the people didn't have a chance to to vote on this the government just one day implemented and it, the people went along with it and it's success and to this very day, what happened is that the Vietnamese people no longer, the new generations of Vietnamese um, are not people who were born and, and raised in war. These are the people who are born and raised in a, in a prospect Vietnam that, that even though it's scarred from the war, but doesn't live in the shadow of a war. So in, that's why in 2017, 2018, there was a lot of um, of protests in Vietnam that made it to the international uh, news when Vietnam, the Vietnamese people outright protest against the, the Chinese government from taking their, one of their lands and their, their island and all that stuff.
the 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 people you're, change. You're talking about China's expansion into, into the yes. South China Sea. China, and... China, yes, this has a lot. To, I mean, the the, I mean, this will be a purely politic talk for a different day. But yes, what um the highlight I want to point out is the fact that the people no longer just stay silent, and and let anything happened to them, the way the war did to them, the way this doi might happen to them. Um, but that the people have started to take their own, they may have started to speak up, they wanted their voice to be heard. They went from invisible to be, to be seen. And now the question is, would they remain just be seen and not be heard? Is the, is the, is the new mark of this new generation that the people want to grow out of Doi Moi, grow on top of the success of Doi Moi. And, and this is a whole brand new challenge that the government, the Vietnamese government eventually probably should address in the light of, of the, 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 the changes Doi Moi have brought to them. And my own family story from this is the fact that my parents was very much wanting us to have a chance to see to see the the socialist communist country in a system in his own in our own experience and in his own light as much as I was being given a chance to be here and to see the capitalist um, America and experience it and see it in his own light and I will forever be a I mean, I would forever be in debt for them for, ha for giving me that chance. And, and to me, this is exactly why I wanted this story to come out. It because um, Vietnam is just not one passive, quiet country back in the wood of Southeast, South, one of the Southeast nation, but it is defining its identity right now and is playing a big role in, well, especially what you just mentioned earlier with the the, the China expansion in the South Sea, um, and many more, and maybe even in the, in the North and South reunion, because Vietnam, North and South united after, arguably, right, right. reunited after the, the American War. Our next speaker is Isadora Jaffe, who will be presenting on U.S. Cold War strategy in Japan and its effects on migrants. Thank you, Pablo, for that introduction. Um, I don't want to talk too long about why I chose to research this topic, but I did want to just sort of highlight three moments I had that put me on notice to that the U.S. had a large influence on Japanese legal systems and then how the migrants issue came in. Um, so while I was an English teacher in Japan, I was doing volunteer work with uh, survivors of domestic violence and also just people who had family issues related to being uh, foreign. It was just for foreign women. Um, and one thing that kept coming up was by law, there's this really terrible obstacle for foreign women who are in um, an abusive home situation who have children with um, their partner. So women who were actually able to think about leaving that um, home and have, getting a divorce or, or, and so on, they would come to us and ask sort of how to go on with the proceedings, but we had to notify them that in Japan, when you're a foreign um, 
woman married to a Japanese national, or if you're also a foreign man married to a Japanese woman, you wouldn't be able to retain custody of your child, uh, especially if the the Japanese national uh, so, contested that. And, and this is no matter the circumstances. This is a long, so in an abusive situation, like you said, if you're being abused by your spouse and they're a Japanese national, you still lose custody of your kids. Right. So the fact that it was abuse ending the relationship didn't seem to um, sway this like policy there that right. is just that the person who's from that country gets custody of the children wow. um and so yeah as someone who was i guess an outsider i find this wrong mm-hmm. that i did this but i felt just uh, um critical of this system and was like why would they make the laws like that um and well, that is something natural to want to be critical sh- about we have sure interest in in wanting to to protect children I yeah think. and especially in american culture there's a lot of policy around it sure i think my point is because i saw a lot of um, my colleagues doing this as a westerner as a, an american right, living right. in japan right. everyone has this um natural instinct that definitely should be challenged to think oh my country has a better handle on this or like of why course. would this country do this this way so it was really um clear to me when i found out the u.s had such a big hand in the mm-hmm. japanese mm-hmm. uh legal systems crafting that it was, you know, a bad instinct on my part to assume that, like, my country (laughs) might do a better job with that. Um, And so that was when I started to think about studying law of Japan. And then I did go through with getting a fellowship. And my initial um, topic was just to compare the two legal systems of the U.S. and Japan. And so while I was taking courses, because we would take courses in Japanese, no matter what our research topic was, and we signed up for many different things. So like I took law, I took even like a little portion of contracts law in Japanese, um, criminal law. And so when I was in my modern Japanese history class, I was started to study the US occupation and the teacher even showed us all these different um, news clips that Japanese people saw during the US occupation. And one that struck me was uh, quickly after we began occupying Japan, we forced the emperor, who had always been seen as a living god, a deity, to tell the entire Japanese uh, population and the world, I guess, that he was actually human. And so that was like tens of thousands of years of Japanese culture and sort of one of the biggest thing about their government, that they were led by a living god, just like changed in one day by America. And they made him like come out and like meet with citizens and wear... Um, western uh suit and hat and yeah it just sort of a forced assimilation yeah like this this is they just sort of took a huge part of what um the japanese way had been and changed it um and of course also during that time the constitution was written by the u.s forces it was actually called the macarthur constitution for a while and so then the third thing that happened was right at the beginning of my fellowship, even though it was partially through um, all these Japanese universities and our teachers were all trained in Japan, the home or like the administrating university was Stanford and they had um, heard that there had been a lot of uh, nuclear testing from North Korea going close to one of the islands and because the home university started to get worried like it would be their liability if something happened to us. There was... They, they were worried about liability for Westerners. Yes, they were okay. worried about their, 
you know, American and Canadian students yeah. and what would happen if Japan got uh, one of these nuclear testings came closer. And so we were paying at attention to the news a lot. And the news kept saying that Trump in the U.S. was like annoyed Japan didn't have better um, like uh, forces against North Korea and that they also were looking into building this uh, ship or big um, nuclear weapon like interceptor thing that would be in Japan. But the problem was and Japanese officials and um, experts in like law kept saying like, we don't know if our constitution permits well, that type of infrastructure. Well, right, because I think a lot of people uh, remember after World War II, Japan is, I guess it's in their constitution that they mm -hmm. can't have a standing army. Exactly. Correct, yeah. Yeah, and so there's not supposed to be a standing army. There is a defensive force, but to do something like actively, I guess, go into the sky and take right. down a nuclear weapon. Sort of a, an offensive line. Yeah, it could be seen as... <laughs> its own sort of I, I it still seems sort of defensive <laughs> i guess yeah i actually oh don't think they made it in the end um and right. things have calmed down but it just was very clear that when your constitution is translated and you didn't have your own autonomy in writing it that even the best experts there were a little bit um dumbfounded as to what was legal and so all those three things made me really curious because at the time I had started to work for a nonprofit that helped with migrants. And I'd also in Kyoto where I taught, I had a lot of students who were not Japanese and they were increasing and like issues in school and home life were increasing. I just wanted to know the connection between like when those legal systems were created to the present day, what was um, the influence and if there are issues in, et, um, amending those legal systems um, are, are they bigger issues because the US occupation did something a certain way and so all of the research that I did or not all of it but the most of what I'm talking about today came from I would go to the National Diet Library which is like the Congress of uh, he, like here what do we have the Congressional Library or yeah, Library, of, Library Congress. of Congress yeah, so. and, or the fi Foreign Ministry Library and I would work with those like microfilm computers and print out anything that I thought was interesting. I also looked at um, letters from families that had um, mem family members detained by, I guess it was actually officially the US occupation. And um, yeah, just all of the reports I could find that the US occupation had um, left, which they're called SCAP usually, the U.S. occupation, and those were in English, so a lot of people at my center like joked I was cheating because we were supposed to do everything in Japanese, it was like under oath, but I didn't have a choice, and what was also interesting is a lot of these things never got translated to Japanese, even though they're the records of like how some infrastructure was made, and I did in fact see that at one point the U.S. occupation decided that they were going to try to make the Tokyo police force pattern the same as the NYPD, which as a New Yorker um, shocked me and worried me, but I couldn't really focus on that because I had a lot of other things to do. <laughs> it might shock a lot of New Yorkers. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so anyway, the title of my research was The Americans' Occupations Policy and Attitude Towards Migrants, and I looked at history specifically. I did a case study of people from the Korean Peninsula while talking about the present problems with the rapidly increasing migrant population because Japan right now the population looks like an upside down triangle there are no young people there are so many old people and so what's happening is even just normal retail stores just bars restaurants um, need to be staffed with 
foreign workers, but also especially like agricultural businesses are relying heavily on migrants. Um, and I'm sure a, a dwindling population is, is pretty hard in a rural area as well in Japan. Definitely, and even before this problem happened, there's a lot you uh, learn in history class about how young people just sort of shied away. I think it's similar here from what they thought was dirty or right. like ha- had some sort of stigma. Um, in Japanese, they call it sankei, which means three Ks, because there are three words that are related to like dirty, um, cheap, or um, yeah, just not appealing. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so to lay out just the three steps I want to do is introduce the exact policy that Allied forces in the U.S. occupation subjected people from the Korean Peninsula. Next, explain how this created difficult problems for those folks. And then third, talk about uh, still existing effects. At that time, I'll introduce a nonprofit I worked with that helps um, with direct services to migrants. Okay, so a a really quick description of immigration history before the occupation. Until World War I, immigration protocol was extremely tolerant in Japan, which people find unexpected because um, it's known as a very anti-outsider country. Yeah, I I find that very (laughs) unexpected because I was always under the impression that it was, you know, really anti-foreigner, even if you were Japanese, but from, you know, South America when you would go back to Japan or... Right, or, you know, to see like, like maybe where you're and Brazilian e- exactly. I knew that was a, yeah, a big thing where Japanese people weren't so welcoming. Yeah, um, no, that's a whole other really interesting topic too. Exactly, yeah. There's that, those real histories. Right. But until World War One, no one needed a passport or a visa to enter the country, and that continued until um, because J- Japan started a bit after World War One, way before we considered the start of World War Two to colonize Asia. Um, and they were all over China and they had Korea for like over a decade before World War Two as their colony. Um, and so when more with China especially got a lot more tense, um, then they started to make a few immigration laws and stricter measures. So that was in 1939 that those were made. And so from the time of Japan's surrender, which was the late summer of 1945, to the end of that year, among the 2 million people in Japan that were from the Korean Peninsula, 1.3 million were repatriated. But those left in Japan experienced horrific discrimination and treatment. Um, I found some, in some ways, arguably worse than when the Japanese were governing them in Japan. And so the Allied forces, of course, prioritized and treated their own country's people in Asia best. So that was the U.S., the U.K., Australia, New Zealand. Um, And so once the Allied forces had taken over the very aggressive Japanese empire, they had control of pretty much most of Asia except for Thailand. Then they held a conference in D.C. called the Greater Eastern Conference. And there, without consulting a single Japanese person, but what's worse, worse, um, anyone who was a colonial subject under Japan, so again, most people in Asia except for in Thailand, um, like people in Korea and China, at this conference, they classified all of those folks as um, the enemy of the allied forces. And so after, yeah. Liberated by the allied forces and celebrated for that and then told they were the enemy Right. right, so exactly, I guess 
maybe they were just they tried to justify this because Japan had an aggressive uh, indoctrination plan. They would make people study Japanese. They would make them practice Shintoism, and they would even change their names. But yeah, like you said, imagine being told you're liberated, but then you're going to have all of you know your legal. Um, just the treatment to be as if you were the same as Japan as if you are an enemy um, and yeah just not free to just do what you want um, and reports that were left behind I read one from the Australian army uh, Aus- Australia was sort of the first present in Japan since they're very close by and so they had written the remaining 60,000 Korean people living in Japan are lawless and violent lo- loving minorities and then they went on to recommend that to prevent crime, all all foreigners in Japan, well, except like the, the occupation, except, except the uh, yes, exactly, all foreigners should be fingerprinted and registered, and then required to carry around an alien registration card. And it can be assumed the U.S. took those recommendations seriously because, in May of 1946, the U.S made a declaration that anyone not a part of their occupation forces was required to be registered and carry the card around at all time. But also, so what about those who were returned to Korea, the 1.3 million? So the day after the atomic bomb was dropped on Nagasaki, without consulting a single person from the Korean peninsula, um, two junior officers, Officers who actually were holding an incorrect map of Korea and allegedly may have been drinking um, divided the country of Korea into the north and south parts. So that's the 38th parallel that still exists today. Um, so the next year, Japan also had a border drawn for them by the U.S. It was called the MacArthur Line, and it was for how far people could go out to fish. From April of 1946 to the end of 1940 end of 1951 48,760 undocumented people were recorded in Japan of those 45 of those over 45,000 were people from the Korean Peninsula so my largest question in all of this research was just why are there so many people from the Korean Peninsula um, being recorded as undocumented and that's especially because before the U.S. occupation before World War II and during it, there had been lots of people from Korea living in Japan legally and working, not necessarily in the best um, sense, like a lot of people had been forcibly brought to Japan, but people were making money and they just didn't have this issue where they would be undocumented um, and hiding from the authorities or not able to legally work. And so my conclusion in my research was that this number of people was directly caused by American policy. And that's because in order to try and save the severely devastated economy of Japan, again, the U.S. made their decisions of who to prioritize, and it was Japan. So they made a repatriation policy for those they sent back to Korea. They only allowed every person going back to bring with them $10. And I read in a report that the U.S. even realized that this was so detrimental and sort of against human rights to those being repatriated. And they made a recommendation to bring the money from $10 to $1,000, but then they never did it. Um, there was also a report done by a Korean research, researcher named Cho Green Seek, and he went to the famous detention camp and survey, surveyed the 4,000 people there that were detained for being undocumented. All of them had previously lived in Japan. 
80% said that it was because of this $10 only policy that when they arrived back in Korea, they were unable to live and that the reason they had come back to Japan was literally not to die, to, or, to escape um, starvation. And I found a lot of letters um, of the people who had been detained for being undocumented where they would threaten to go on hunger strike and things like that because you know, they recognized this was unjust. It wasn't just, oh, they got caught doing something wrong. Um, and rich people and diplomats were also not finding themselves to have exceptions to this policy or this detainment. So one man, while he was visiting his sick mother in Korea, there was a foreign registration that was done, a foreigner registration that was done. And so when he came back, he was incarcerated for being undocumented. So this man had $80,000 in a salary of $200 a month. And so, of course, that's a lot more in 1946 than today. Um, he did eventually get out because he had things like the mayor's support from the town he had lived in in Japan, but he was incarcerated for a while. A diplomat named Chang John, he asked MacArthur for the favor of getting his family to have refuge in Japan during the Korean War, since the war was so intense and unsafe. But MacArthur refused him and said, there is a possibility that would anger Japan too much, which what you can see from the past from Korea and Japan. And right now, there's a really big problem with the Korean population living in Japan. And so most people who wanted to seek refuge or asylum from Korea during the war, they just couldn't. Um, and so I focused a lot when I read these reports on the mention of foreign laborers because I wanted to see also not just straight up policy, but how were the US occupation describing people who were not from Japan and what was their attitude. So I found extreme criticism and stereotyping of those who are from Korea, Taiwan, and China. So sort of, I guess, transporting that US immigration policy of this group of immigrants is desirable and this other group is undesirable. So we're gonna evaluate them based on this. Yes, exactly. It seemed like there was already the assumption that, well, of course, the Western foreigners weren't even considered foreigners. They were like the government, <laughs> but like that those people who were from, once again, like they were had been colonized. They, their countries were really, had been places of war too. They were pretty devastated. There wasn't a sense of, oh, wow, these people are heroic. It was more because of also their connection to things like in China um, and Korea too of communist socialist policy, it was more like they're dangerous, they're not desirable. Why do we have to, we're in Japan, but we have to deal with like non-Japanese people rather than any sympathy that these were people who had, you know, been under a terrible empire. And so one thing I saw, um, a direct example, there was this shortage of laborers in the coal mines and the U.S. just blamed, they straight up blamed Korea and Taiwanese folks. They said that they intimidated and threatened the Japanese laborers and that's why no one wanted to work there and that that was what the labor shortage was caused by, which just seemed strange. Uh, same thing here, but you just don't really get undocumented or even documented migrants going out of their way to like harass people and get in trouble with law enforcement. It, I just found that hard to believe when I was reading it. Um, and so the last thing I want to talk about for the history part is the a law that was made in 1951 called the Immigrant Immigration and Refugee Control Law. Um, and this is again still during the US occupation that it was created and it still exists today as the main immigration framework in Japan. 
The law's structure and guideline was largely influenced by an American immigration official called Nicholas Collar. Collar was a U.S.-Mexico border specialist, so he oversaw the making of the most famous detention center, which is called Omura Detention Center. And today, still, there's many problems. I've been at a lot of conferences where they talk about hunger strikes there or people who have committed suicide because also in Japan, there's no um, limit on how long you can detain someone for being undocumented. And obviously, if they can't go back home, that could just be in an infinite amount of time. So that can be a reason a lot of people um, take their own lives. Um, Color had held the opinion, sort of like what you were saying, Pablo, that anyone who was a communist was therefore an undesirable person, and so they should be deported. Um, he also felt strongly, as many in, of the U.S. occupation officials did, that once the occupation ended, Japan was their most uh, strategic ally, since it was capitalist, it was a democracy, and so they were worried about the other countries in the region and wanted Japan to sort of represent the U.S. interest. And they really were afraid that Japan would turn into a communist socialist country. So they tried to base this law I was just talking about made in 1951 on a law the U.S. used to have called the McCarran Law. But that law was actually ruled by the Supreme Court later on to be unconstitutional. It was widely criticized for having a discriminatory purpose. So by that law, those who were poor or disabled or allegedly had quote-unquote dangerous ideologies, they could just be deported. And so that was how this first immigration law in 1951 was framed. And at the time it was created, the Korean people that were living in Japan, they had an 80% unemployment rate. And so naturally that caused a lot of fear and anxiety. Um, and so, of course, this law has been amended many times, but no one could say that right now the immigration issues Japan has has been resolved or don't connect back to um, the sort of undesirable migrant um, stereotype and then um, so, creates policy. So they're still using this law today? The law to, has to never been overhauled. It's still called the same name. Right. And, and do they still deport people under the law? Uh, they deport people for being overstayers or undocumented. Um, I, I have seen, though, there was a case actually of an even American guy, so then it just shows what's happening to non-Americans. He had protested the Vietnam War. Maybe he had been sort of interested in socialism groups in Japan. And so when he reapplied to keep, and he had a Japanese partner, when right. he reapplied to get his visa, they denied it. And that's a famous case in Japan that they always say, to, um, used to say, you know, you're not guaranteed to live here. So through things like that, yeah, it's still true that if you have some sort of dangerous ide ideology or dangerous activities, it could be dangerous for you to um, think that you could stay in Japan while doing that. But I would say it'd be incorrect if I if I left everyone here thinking, you know, if you're disabled, you'll get deported in right. Japan or something like that. It has been amended. It's just more there's a broken system right now and when you want to fix the system how can you ignore its origins especially when the systems were made when the country had no autonomy and there's sort of even a language barrier with the crafting of the system and um like the constitution was just translated it wasn't then sort of revised to have a japanese origin 
and to also because relations in Asia, based on what happened in World War II and the Japanese Empire, are still pretty terrible. They severely need to have、um, more mendings of relations in Asia. But this problem is also only、um, amplified when, like, there wasn't Japan. Japan didn't have autonomy during the critical time after World War II, and there's it's a whole other history. But everything that happened with the war crime trials and how guilty Japan got to look for what they did in Asia again was all U.S. agenda and then implemented.、Um, so yeah, today, other than this, also just you know desirable versus undesirable or Um, stereotyping of certain types of people from s- certain countries. Japan just doesn't have a pure labor visa.、Um, there's a s- for people who are working in the things I talked about earlier, like restaurants or retail stores or agriculture. There's two visas that people use. There's the student visa, which you're allowed to work 20 hours a week on, and some people just don't actually go to school and work many more hours than that. Um, and that's also encouraged because they just need people to work.、Um, and then there's this terrible visa called the Tech Intern Visa.、Um, I think Feist did an expose that aired in the U.S. and they called it the worst internship ever. And so on that visa, there's just a lot of problems. So, I mean, sometimes I saw a, visi- a video where there were two Indonesian tech interns who seemed to be enjoying. Their time、um, because the whole policy or purpose behind it is that people from mostly Southeast Asia or China, because、um, they don't take people from countries in like Africa or Latin America. I think.、Oh, really? Yeah, it's also selective in that way.、Okay. So you would only be able to do the student visa. And Japan also has really no refugees recu- recognized. I think they had twenty thousand applications when I was working at the nonprofit, and they only accepted nineteen. Oh my god!、Uh, yeah, so which is it's just like ridiculous since they need foreign workers. But、um, with the tech intern program,、um, the point of it is that. You're supposed to learn all these great skills in Japan on your internship that you'll bring home, and you better go home with them. And that you're only there for a temporary amount of time, but you're going to be like taught so much that you can then go improve your community and your country. When instead, a lot of people are having the worst、uh, labor conditions possible. It feels like like they and they also sometimes they have their passports taken away from them, and they don't have cell phone access. And then they're exploited. They'll charge、um, some of the workers like a thousand dollars for a bed in a room with other workers, like ten other workers. The, I even saw a chart、um, that we got from an actual tech intern where they were charging her like fifty cents every time she used the bathroom, and she'd lose her wages that way. And then a lot of the workers wind up owing money because some of them have also come in like with their ticket being paid for, but they have to work it off, and they just don't have job security because when they complain about the work circumstances,、um, they can even be、uh, deported since their immigration status depends on the internship. This sounds, I mean, just like indentured servitude. It- Doesn't sound like you have much freedom at all. Yeah, the place I work did try to make the,、um, you know, they think it's human trafficking,、right. um, and unfortunately, the, the the place I worked also was able to get the government to acknowledge there was a problem, and they 
completely overhauled the oversight organization that Japan had for the tech intern program, but then they just made a new one that's doing the same thing because it doesn't have like a legal basis to prosecute the workplaces. It's just somewhere where you report things and then it just ne nothing is really that fixed. And this isn't going to go away because I think it was even only a month ago the Japanese government announced in order to pull off the, the Olympics that are happening next year and because they have to reconstruct the, the disaster sites related to the nuclear meltdown in Fukushima, they need a half million more of these tech interns. Um, and that's a 200,000 increase of the current number. And they emphasize they don't care if these people know much Japanese, um, which might be good because it's getting more of an accessible program, but it's not good for the issues I cited earlier because if you're having someone exploit you not knowing the language is right. definitely a way to continue getting explo exploited. And so, yeah, this isn't going to get better because the population is also decreasing. Um, and, yeah, so <laughs> I don't have any really, like, positive thing <laughs> to say at the end of this except that um yeah I, I mean well I mean do you have any what's your what's your hope looking forward for Japan that they would do are you an advocate for repealing these laws that you've talked about like completely and just abolishing the entire system since it was it seems to be sort of misplaced by by western powers on the country anyways um yeah, I mean, I, I think the problem with completely overhauling something and creating something new is then you have to trust those in government. And right now, Japan has a very nationalist government. Um, I would be worried for them to create something new. I guess what my main thing that I'd like to see and that I know the people I work for who are much more knowledgeable than me is them making a pure labor visa that someone just applies to and they don't have to go through this internship or this like lying about going to school. Right. It no would just be protections. Yeah. Right. You would just have your visa and you wouldn't have to have um, these brokers who usher you into some sketchy right. business. And there really should be um, that. And Japan should really be interested in cleaning this up because with something influenced by the U.S. and the U.S. by example, I think they're looking at you know, having the same social problems we have here with homelessness. And they're trying to get, Japan has amazing health insurance. And recently they're trying to get like workers off of that health insurance because wow. they don't want to pay for it. So it's just, there, there should be, um, yeah, there needs to be a wake up call before it gets to be like here. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very much, Isadora. <laughs> That's all the time we have for today. Okay. Thank you. Okay.